Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.2. Moses and Friends. Also, Pharaoh. In this episode, we'll continue our tour through the First Testament, aka the Old Testament, as the second part of our world-building series meant to help explain Catholic Christianity and the biblical stories embedded in it, so we can all be sure to have our Pope colored glasses to put on once we start with the main show. As a reminder, just because the focus of this episode is the Bible, doesn't mean it's appropriate for all ages. I aim to keep things PG-13, or possibly even PG if you're a fairly permissive parent, but don't expect G. As an additional reminder, this is in no way a careful or comprehensive summary. It is also not carried out with much reverence. There are many careful, comprehensive, and reverent summaries of these stories available for free. Rather, this tour is meant to be a fairly quick way to help get everyone on more or less the same page before we start going on with our main focus of history through Pope-colored glasses. I'm going to fail to cover a lot, including failing to reflect in any meaningful way on the often great significance these stories have outside this podcast's narrowly defined lens of Christianity, specifically Catholic Christianity. Now, I'm probably pushing the limits of your patience with all this housekeeping, but to quote Jesus, in my father's house, there are many rooms. All these rooms means there's a bit more house to keep, because before we can pick things back up with the story of Moses, I do think it's important to recap the conventional Christian understanding of God to keep that in mind as a general framework, because it's typically in the back and often in the front of the minds of Catholics who encounter these stories throughout history. And really, while we're doing the world-building necessary to understand what Catholics see when they look at the papacy, we'll want to keep these fundamental concepts of God clearly in mind as we go. So, the Church teaches that God is a trinity, one God in three divine persons. It's accepted as an axiom that this teaching is something that is beyond human understanding. It's specifically not a contradiction, according to the teaching. It's simply something that we aren't equipped to fully grasp. As a reminder, I'm not asking you to accept this teaching to continue following this podcast. Just keep it in mind as part of the framework to understand where the Catholic perspective is coming from. In terms of who the divine persons are, there's the Father, who is most generally understood as the Creator, though emphasizing that too strongly gets you into theological trouble in much the same way as leaning on anything too much when it comes to the Trinity gets you into theological trouble. There's also the Son, most generally understood as the Redeemer from sin on account of the Incarnation, which is referring to how God became man in the old-fashioned, gender-neutral, generic, human sense, though he did also happen to be biologically male. While looking at Jesus, in addition to the becoming flesh, which is the literal meaning of the Incarnation, it's also worth mentioning the hypostatic union. That's the term for how the divine and the human are related in the Son, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. Or perhaps 
Jesus the Christ, since Christ is a specific title that means anointed, while Jesus is his personal name. Jesus, by the way, means God saves, if you are curious. That hypostatic union is shorthand for Christ being 100% human and 100% divine, with the two natures not mixing together. The third of the divine persons that are God, both individually and collectively in a way that's beyond human understanding, is the Holy Spirit, sometimes thought of as the Sanctifier. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us to God the Father through the Son, that is, Jesus Christ. From a Christian perspective, the Holy Spirit already had some cameos in Genesis, for instance, as the Spirit that flowed over the primordial waters of the, quote, formless void that was the earth before the rest of the creation. And since Christians have for most of their history used a dove as one of the most common representations of the Holy Spirit, they also tend to see the dove that brings back an olive branch to Noah to show that part of the earth is habitable again after the flood as a symbol, or to use some specialized Bible study language, a type of the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about biblical types and antitypes. The type-antitype framework is, I think it's fair to say, though I'm open to correction on this, it's the most common way of understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament within Christianity. In biblical typology, as it's known, uh, Old Testament people and things, like Adam, are paired with New Testament people and things, like Jesus. And that particular connection between Adam and Jesus is actually one of the earliest examples of biblical typology in a Christian context, being recorded in the Bible itself in two of the letters attributed to St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and also in Romans chapter 5. Indeed, that second section is in no small part where the term comes from. In Romans 5.14, the term translated as type is used explicitly. Quote, Adam, who is a type of the one to come. End quote. That is, Jesus. The Greek imagery here is like a stamp or a mold compared to the impression made or the shape left. And don't worry, we'll take a look at St. Paul and give him a proper introduction in, episode, in a future episode. He's actually going to be with us in one form or another the whole way through. There's a reason he shares a feast day with St. Peter, the first pope. Oh, I've also got a note to explain what a feast day is, though that's going to have to wait for another day. Getting back to our biblical narrative. The Book of Exodus. When we left things off, the sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, a name which means struggles with God because of that time he wrestled with God in angelic form or something like that. The passage isn't really clear. Uh, anyways, the sons of Jacob slash Israel were living in Egypt, though Jacob had been laid to rest in Canaan, and the descendants of Jacob's son Joseph had promised him that they'd take his bones with them if they ever, you know, decided to pack it up and get back to Canaan themselves. There might be a bit of foreshadowing here, given that the book we're now in is called Exodus, which, when I pull up my handy dictionary, is defined as, quote, a mass departure of people, end quote. Might there be some kind of exodus in the book of Exodus? Place your bets now. Alright, now collect if you found a fool, or pay out if you are one, because, yeah, the defining event of the book of Exodus is the exodus of the people of Israel or, if you like, the descendants of the sons of Jacob, keeping in mind that Jacob and Israel are two names for the same person. They're going back to Canaan, the land of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, yes, Jacob. But before we get to the Exodus itself, we've got to get through a few generations. Specifically, a few rather fertile generations. So fertile, in fact, 
that Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, you may have heard of the Pharaohs, starts to worry that the Israelites might become a fifth column and overwhelm the Egyptians. His solution? Oppress the Israelites. But, quote, the more they were impressed, the more they multiplied and spread, end quote. What is to be done? Well, the next step, apparently, was killing every male child born to a Hebrew mother. Uh, side note, Hebrew is mostly synonymous with Israelite, a.k.a. descendant of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. But first off, that's a silly plan if you look at biology, because, well, it takes a woman more time to make a baby than it does a man. In any case, presumably, since infanticide is harder to stomach than oppressing a minority group, that plan doesn't work out, because the Egyptian midwives refuse to carry it out. So God blesses them. Moses. Nevertheless, Pharaoh insists, and things get dire enough that when a boy called Moses, or if you'd like more accurate pronunciation, something like Moisa, is born, his mother hides him for three months before setting him off sailing down the Nile in a basket made of reeds. Which, if you squint, is kind of obeying orders to throw male children born to Hebrew women into the Nile. I mean, if she kind of lightly tossed the kid into the basket and you had a good lawyer... Either way, I think we can all agree Moses' mama wasn't really getting into the spirit of things. Uh, to make things worse, at least from Pharaoh's perspective, it looks like Mama Moses even had Moses' older sister, Miriam, keep tabs on the basket, greatly reducing the danger. Of course, the real stroke of luck, and it's pretty easy to picture this being the plan all along, comes when baby Moses is found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, who correctly guesses that he's a Hebrew child and who seeks out a conveniently placed nursing Hebrew mother to feed him. Uh, that'd be Mama Moses herself. So Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, while the woman who nurses him is secretly his unnamed mother. Quick side note, it's genuinely annoying how often women go unnamed in these stories, and really throughout history. Both Mama Moses and Pharaoh's daughter have traditional names handed down through extra-biblical sources, as do many of the other folks mentioned in the Bible, though not directly named, but I'm declining to use those here in order to stick as closely to the biblical account as possible, since the non-scriptural commentaries aren't really a core part of the Christian lens I'm trying to convey. The Midrashes and all else are worth exploring, though, so I highly recommend looking them up. And if you have time for this, you certainly have time for that. Back to Moses. He's gotten big since his baby basket days. Big enough to murder an Egyptian he sees mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews, because it turns out that, yep, Big White Beard Ten Commandments Charlton Heston Moses was a murderer. Which is probably in the movie, but don't quote me on that because I haven't actually seen it. It's definitely in the Bible, though, and so is the part where Moses ends up on the lamb in Midian across the Red Sea. That's in the northwest corner of modern-day Saudi Arabia. For more narrative slowing unnecessary detail, it turns out that the Midianites are descendants of Abraham, like Moses himself. But rather than stemming from the chosen one Isaac, the Midianites are descended from Abraham by, well, Midian, his sixth son overall and his fourth son by his third wife Keturah. Quick shout out to Keturah, who bore Abraham six of his eight sons, and yet is pretty much forgotten by everyone in favor of Sarah and Hagar. Now, I bring up the family not just because I never saw a tangent I didn't like and wanted to give a nod to the underappreciated Keturah, but also as a way of noting the incest present when Moses marries a Midianite woman named Zipporah. Granted, incest isn't that surprising, especially in the biblical narrative where everyone is related, sharing a common ancestor not only through Adam and Eve, 
but also more recently through Noah. And really, this is a mild case. We know Moses is a great, 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 great grandson of Abraham through Isaac, then Jacob, then Levi, then some generations no one cares about. It's relatively removed. I mean, not to put anyone in bad light here, but looking back from Midian across the Red Sea to Egypt, well, assuming this is all based at least somewhat on real events, there's a better-than-you-might-expect chance Pharaoh's wife, who plucked Moses out of the river, also happened to be Pharaoh's sister. Historically, long before this time, King Tutankhamun, a.k.a. King Tut, was married to his sister, and he himself was actually the product of another brother-sister union. Plus, in much later times, the pharaoh Cleopatra was married to two of her brothers before they each died, and paparazzi started sneaking photos of her hanging out with members of the Second Triumvirate. Anyways, this is a history of the papacy, not of the pharaohs, so let's get on with the story of Pope uh, Moses, uh, shall we? Yeah, Pope Moses. Sure, you know what, whatever. Anyways, the heat is off Moses now since Pharaoh died, presumably of old age, while we were off on those tangents. Moses and Zipporah also had two surprisingly inconsequential kids during that time. And now it's time for God to get back into the story, something he hasn't done directly since Abraham. Moses is shepherding flocks well out in the wilderness when he sees a burning bush, or rather an on-fire bush, since even though this episode is most often described as, quote, the burning bush, end quote, in English, the whole point of the bush and what makes it special is that it's specifically not burning up, which isn't clear when you shorthand it as the burning bush, though now that I think about it, the on-fire bush doesn't really help clarify things. Anyways, when it comes to establishing clarity, it's hard to beat the literal voice of God, which is what Moses hears when he goes to check out the on-fire-but-not-burning-burning bush. Lose the shoes, God says. Your translation may differ. Then God tells Moses that he's chosen him to lead his people, the Israelites, that is, the descendants of Jacob, out from Egypt. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's finally time for the Exodus. Moses is a bit skeptical, thinking he might not be the best fit for the job, but God promises to be with him and guide him. For good measure, God also teaches Moses some magic tricks, like turning his staff into a snake and back, but Moses still isn't convinced and keeps asking for God to send someone else. Eventually, God caves and tells Moses he can hide behind his big brother Aaron as long as he promises to use his own staff to do the magic tricks. Now it's time for another housekeeping note before I get stoned for blasphemy. With a pre-housekeeping note as well, blasphemy is speaking disrespectfully about holy things, and when I say getting stoned, that's having rocks thrown at me, not the fun kind of getting stoned. We'll delve more into both later, though the fun kind will have to wait for another episode. As for the housekeeping, I've already mentioned that I'll be speaking pretty spuriously in order to make this show more palatable to an audience that's interested in the subject matter, but isn't in the mood for the dressed-up reverence that often comes from a sympathetic approach to religious topics. But I figure it's worth a reminder. Of course, since you also do need to be in the mood for tangents and a particularly strong strain of my droning, I'm not really expecting a large audience. But hey, if you're still listening, well, that's something. Objectively, it's probably something you should keep to yourself. But since I'm running this podcast, well, be sure to tell your friends. Speaking of telling people things that will have them scornfully laughing at you while they wave you out of their presence, it turns out that Pharaoh didn't care for the magic tricks God had showed. Sure, Aaron could make a stick into a snake, 
but apparently so could Pharaoh's court magicians, which might be a bit surprising if you had certain expectations going into this. And for what it's worth, this isn't the only time the quote-unquote bad guys are shown to have some substance and skill. If you want some real theological fun, point out that Exodus 12.12 says that gods judge the gods of Egypt, or that he will judge the gods of Egypt, or something like that. Hebrew isn't great at telling time, but suffice to say, yes, the Bible periodically treats other gods as real entities, which is a fun trait for, like, the foundational text of monotheism. Apparently, a bit embarrassing, too, given that when I was looking up chapter and verse on that, I found a site that answers the question, quote, does the Bible mention Egyptian gods and goddesses, end quote, with a straightforward, quote, no, it doesn't, end quote, which is false in every translation on account of that verse from all I could find. Real entities are not, and the usual explanation given is that the gods mentioned are actually demons, which gets into all sorts of fun issues. Anyways, real entities are not. Our boy Adonai is better than they are because forget firstborn children, God, most specifically God the Father, in the Christian view, is the hero of the overall story of the Old Testament. So sure, Anubis and Ra and the one with like a rabbit head or whatever, well they can make staffs be snakes too, but Aaron's snake staff eats their snake staffs, and as things start going plague work, the magical punches that get traded are going to lean in God with a capital G's favor for a while. But since I'm right on the edge of something you might actually be interested in, that means, much like an infuriatingly timed commercial break back when that was a thing, and no, I don't miss those days, much like such a break, it's time for another tangent in the form of a discussion of the names for God. Because you may have flagged that Adonai drop a minute ago, and I owe it to at least some of you to explain. Actually, I owe none of you, and none of you owe me, but you're here, I'm here, we're never going to start talking about the popes in this podcast allegedly centered on the papacy, and it's a whole thing. Let's just do this. One key bit of the burning bush story, dropping that longer version I made up because I'm burning even myself with that bit, one key bit of the actual burning bush story is the part where God tells Moses, I am. God is, to such an extent that God is more is than anything else because our being comes from God, according to the medieval scholastic philosophers and others, and it's a whole thing. And I mean, it's a whole thing. Like this I am business was such a big deal, capital B, capital D, that the four letters that make up that phrase were understood as like the proper personal name of God, revealed to Moses in a profound way, and so holy that no upstanding Hebrew can even say that name anymore, lest they be taking God's name in vain. Which is really inconvenient, since a name like I Am has got to be even more popular than a name like John or Mary or whatever. Like, as I understand it, this bracketing off of those four letters that in English translate as I Am was every bit as inconvenient as it would be to, well, forbid people from saying I Am in English. And I'm pretty sure you couldn't get away with it by saying I'm, or some other shortening, though of course, some shortcuts did develop through the years. Lord is the end result of one such shortcut, as the English translation of the Greek word Adonai that I threw out there, which was subbed in whenever the Tetragrammaton showed up in the Bible passage an observant Jew was reciting. Tetragrammaton being the technical term I am ended up receiving tetra for four, grammata for letters, the original four-letter word as it were. These four letters were so holy, in fact, and this may be apocryphal, 
but it seems plausible given how closely associated writing was with magical powers and societies just picking up writing systems. Anyways, it's my understanding that it was the holiness of this I am name for God that's the reason that Hebrew vowels are dots and lines and such that kind of dance around the consonants rather than wedging their way between them like you might expect. And maybe it wasn't so specifically the tetragrammaton as it was the understood sacred and to be carefully preserved nature of the holy text as a whole, but in any case, it certainly is the case that Hebrew vowels evolved without requiring any changes of, or even any moving aside, of the consonants to fit a vowel between them. Pretty serious stuff, and yes, if you're trying to picture this, I am saying that Hebrew was written just with consonants initially, and then vowels came in later. And that's actually not unusual in terms of evolution of written scripts, as I understand it. Now, verbally, all this mattered as well. From what I understand, which is very little, the only time anyone got a pass and was allowed to say, I am, without getting in trouble, was the high priest in the presence of the Holy of Holies on the biggest feast of the year, which is Rosh Hashanah. Now, that's all diving ahead a ways, but I mention it now because of this whole name for God bit is as good of an excuse as any and because it's also so fascinating. With no one around to hear that sacred uttering, and with no written version for a good while until the very respectful and unobtrusive vowels came along, if all that's the case, how did they know how the word for I am was actually pronounced? These are the sorts of things that keep me up at night. You're welcome. Oh, by the way, in the first version of this episode, I relayed an apparently apocryphal detail about how the high priest in the Holy of Holies had a rope around him in case God decided to smite him to death since no one else would be authorized to retrieve the body. That detail is apocryphal, which is to say it's bunk. So I apologize for helping spread that rumor, but man, even the existence of that particular rumor is a fun bit of trivia. Now, speaking of not necessarily knowing how to pronounce something that was never heard and was never written with vowels, before I actually stop stalling and get ahead with the promised plagues, I need to actually bring up Yahweh. Because yes, that's apparently a decent guess as to how our new old friend the Tetragrammaton is pronounced. The letters more or less map to Y-H-W-H, -H, then you sprinkle in some vowels. A less good way to guess at the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton is Jehovah. No offense to any affiliated witnesses who may be listening. That comes from the fact that there really isn't a Y sound or a W sound in Latin, which is a problem, since without that, you're down to the letter H. Two of them, to be sure, but seriously, it's slim pickings indeed at that point. Oh, but perhaps we can roll with it and start calling Big Daddy God Double H, like a discount wrestler. Anything surely better than continuing to call him Big Daddy. So, Double H doesn't get respect from Pharaoh and his magicians with the first few magic tricks, meaning, yes, it's time to get biblical with some plagues to convince Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And you know what? Let's do some actual, longish quoting Bible reading for these, just to change it up a bit. The first plague, blood. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hands I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hands over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. 
he raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace, and did not take even this to heart. Exodus chapter 7, verses 17 to 23. Fun times, ladies and gentlemen, fun times. And yes, even here, Pharaoh's own magicians keep up, which really couldn't have been popular with the Egyptians themselves. I mean, even their already gathered buckets and tubs turned into blood, and not just once, but twice in a magic off. The following week, they got another treat. Quote, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. End quote. Exodus chapter 8 verses 1 through 7. Yes, frogs all over, and a big thanks to Pharaoh's magicians for making sure the Egyptians got to deal with them not once, but twice. And for added fun, after Pharaoh agrees to let the Hebrews go out and worship, Moses promises to ask God to get rid of the frogs in exchange. But frankly, that's not really what happens. Here's some more. Quote, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. End quote. Exodus chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. I mean, frankly, with that sort of quote-unquote relief, I'd probably renege on my deal too. Leaving mountains of reeking frog corpses everywhere isn't exactly following up on the quote, the frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people, so that you may know that there was no one like the Lord our God, end quote. Frankly, and it's a bit odd since this is coming from the literal Bible, Moses, and by extension God, comes across as a bit of a dick here. Anyways, since Pharaoh's hardened his heart again, that means it's time for another plague. Quote, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, Gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by the secret arts, they could not. 
Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. End quote. Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. Yes, that's right. Pharaoh's magicians have lost the ability to keep pace over gnats of all things. Let me tell you, I did not see that one coming. Of course, what I, and perhaps all of you, did see coming with Pharaoh's heart hardening again is another plague, this time of flies. I'm going to skip the rest of the plague reading so we can actually get past Moses today, but one feature of the flies part is that Pharaoh offers to let the Israelites offer sacrifices to their god in Egypt, an offer which Moses rejects, saying that they have to go a three days journey into the wilderness. This kind of brings home something that was a bit of a revelation to me as I thought about this this time around. Moses isn't being frank with Pharaoh. Sure, Pharaoh would have definitely said no to allowing the Hebrews to leave Egypt permanently. But Pharaoh's already saying no, isn't he? And Moses knows the end game is a permanent departure. So why isn't he being frank with Pharaoh? Well, it's because he's saying what God told him to say. The whole let my people go for a long weekend kind of approach is God's idea. Why God chose to set it up so that Moses is basically lying to Pharaoh sure looks like an interesting theological question to me. Feel free to write in with your thoughts to popularhistory at gmail.com, that's popular with an E, and we might have an answer down the road. Email plug? Check. Okay, so flies come, and another new feature of this particular plague is that the flies spare the Israelites. I suspect that the Israelites would have liked to have been spared from some of the earlier plagues, just like the Egyptians probably would have appreciated Pharaoh's magicians not cursing everyone to prove a point, but hey, what can you do? Surprise, surprise, we have another round of Pharaoh relenting and agreeing to terms, then reneging and not letting the Israelites go, followed by another plague. This time, it's the death of all the livestock of the Egyptians, with all the Israelite livestock being spared. Frankly, this one seems to be an escalation. Losing your drinking water for a bit is bad, but temporary. The death of all the livestock is going to take a long while to recover from. Good news for the Israelites that God decided to start sparing them in time to miss this one. Rinse, repeat, repent, recant, replague. Boils for all the Egyptians. Repent, recant, replague. Hail on all the Egyptians, on their crops, and their apparently somehow alive again now livestock. We do get nice agricultural data that though the Egyptians lose their flax and barley, their wheat and their spelt are okay since they ripen later. Good to know, I guess. Now we get perhaps the most iconic plague, the plague of locusts. I'm told grasshoppers are only referred to as locusts when en masse rather than individually, Either way, a plague of locusts is more bad news for an agricultural-based society, whether ancient Egypt or the U.S. Great Plains in the 1870s. The very specific threat is that the crops left over after the hail, I guess the wheat and spelt, will be gone after the locusts. Pharaoh is almost ready to yield, but he asks who's going off into the wilderness to worship. Moses answers, everyone. Not just the men, like Pharaoh is ready to allow, but the women, the children, their flocks and herds, everyone and everything Israelite. Pharaoh isn't an idiot, 
and he objects. It's pretty clear they aren't going to be coming back. So it's plague time again. On come the locusts. Rinse, repeat. The next plague, the second to last if anyone's counting, is darkness for three days for everyone in Egypt, except the Israelites. That one seems a bit like it would be especially freaky, though not as long-term devastating as the infrastructure destroying that's been going on so far. I mean, seriously, Moses is, at God's direction, basically a terrorist here. And I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling bad for Pharaoh, who's getting stubbornness thrust onto him from God, or especially for the Egyptians themselves, who are begging Pharaoh to let the Israelites go at this point. But there's one more plague, and it's a doozy. Every firstborn Egyptian male, and the firstborn of all their cattle, die after Pharaoh is warned and refuses once again, his heart hardened by God. This is the root of what's called Passover, a reference to God in his murderous rage passing over the homes marked with the blood of a lamb according to his instructions to show that there are Israelites living there. The blood of the Passover lamb is a type of Christ adopted by Christians, who see themselves marked by the sacrificial blood of Christ. The layers, from a Christian perspective, are magnified by the fact that Christ is himself the firstborn Son of God. But I'm jumping ahead. In the narrative present, God gives Moses a pretty extensive set of instructions about how Passover is to be observed and memorialized, with a heavy emphasis on unleavened bread, based on the notion that there was no time to wait for the bread to rise, and on consecrating firstborn males of the people and livestock, since God spared them the death he had meted out for their Egyptian counterparts. After this little narrative interlude, Pharaoh and the Egyptians more or less chased the Hebrews out of Egypt, but not before loading them down with gold and prizes and such, since God said that's what would happen, and God is the hero of our story. Now, take another moment to feel bad for poor Pharaoh, because God's not done making an example of him yet. To show just how great a God he is, God drives Pharaoh to change his mind once again and chase after the Israelites. Specifically, Pharaoh chases the Israelites into the Red Sea. Not into the water, because God has worked a miracle through Moses and has made the water split into walls of water on either side with dry land for the Israelites to walk across down the middle in the former seabed. Before Pharaoh and his chariots can catch up properly, God makes some kind of godly scary face at them to make them try to retreat throwing them into a panic, and then he has the water flow back over the Egyptians and drown them all as soon as the Israelites are out. This event leaves the Israelites unpursued but far from home. Indeed, the biblical account shakes out such that only two of the Israelites now starting on their journey into the Sinai desert will end up in the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. We'll cover them in a bit. The remainder of the 600,000 that crossed the Red Sea will die in the desert over the next 40 years. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy One of the first things that happens when the Israelites set off into the desert is that they pick up their traveling companion. That's their old buddy God, taking the shape of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And I've got some good news for you. I'm going to cover these 40 years in the desert a lot faster than I've covered Exodus so far. There's a lot of griping from the Israelites about petty things like 
how they're wandering around in a desert without water, so they're going to die, and how they're wandering around in a desert without food, so they're going to die. And using a sort of bread flake dew called manna for the hunger and water from the rocks for thirst, God begrudgingly takes care of the Israelites' needs while bemoaning their lack of faith and decreeing that they won't get to see the promised land because of it. At one point, Moses himself hits a rock twice when he was, I guess, supposed to just hit it once. And so he too is condemned to die in the desert with the rest of them rather than actually settling in the promised land of Israel. Which might seem like a bit of a harsh punishment since Moses had been super obedient to God throughout all this. Also, by the way, we're told Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, which takes on an amusing dimension when you consider that it's coming from a book traditionally written by Moses. Though even tradition allows for a bit of a departure from the Moses wrote this view, not only for that passage, for obvious reasons, but also for the part where Moses' death is described, also for obvious reasons. These bits are usually credited to the Joshua I mentioned earlier. But we've got some more pretty famous Moses stuff to take care of before we off him and let Joshua take over. Specifically, the Ten Commandments. And you know the Ten Commandments are famous for sure, because they give me an opportunity to present our true guide to the Old Testament, namely, the lyrics to Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. You see, the highlight of the 40 years in the desert is the time Moses returns to Mount Sinai, where he had first come across the specifically not burning burning bush. There, he encounters God again, and directly from God, he receives rules written on two stone tablets, which have come to be known as the Ten Commandments. Now, the Bible says there are ten of these, but it doesn't clearly break down which is what, so there are actually differently numbered lists depending on who you ask. Now, if I actually needed to commit to something, I'd of course use the Catholic numbering. But in reality, I can just get away with reading the passage and letting you divide things as you see fit. Quote, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. End quote. I just need to throw this in here. You say I took a name in vain. I don't even know the name. Ah, yes, Mr. Moses, your name is inscribed in the book of Cohen. You may proceed. Getting back to it, uh, quote, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. 
you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I'm sure you got a bit distracted while I read all that off. Perhaps you started cleaning dirt from under your fingernails. Perhaps you started wondering whether Adam and Eve had belly buttons. Perhaps you made an idol of a calf out of gold and started worshipping it instead of worshipping the Lord. If you can guess which of these things the Israelites were doing when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, you get a prize. For what it's worth, Moses' brother, the high priest Aaron, who literally made that golden calf, gets more or less off the hook by saying the people put him up to it. Which, well, I guess I'm just a little surprised that that excuse flew. Now, Moses smashed the original tablets to the ground in his rage at seeing this. So he goes back up and he gets a new set of tablets. Then, in a bit of a weird scene, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God lets him take a peek at his divine derriere after he walks by naked, which gives Moses a shiny face that scares everyone when he comes back down. A good chunk of the rest of this portion of the Bible, covering the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is concerned with various details about how the Israelites are to be divided in the Holy Land, setting up such things as the tribe of Levi as the Levite priestly class, and giving everyone predetermined plots of land, and also with various rules for life supplementing and going beyond the Ten Commandments. Generally speaking, these aspects don't have a strong influence on Christianity as it historically develops, so I'm not going to be focusing on them. Though it's worth noting that a surprising amount of airtime is given at this early stage to the temple. Nowadays, there isn't a temple in Jerusalem anymore, though the site, the Temple Mount, is still highly esteemed by Jews and, to a lesser extent, Muslims, with Christians having mostly a historical interest. The roots of the temple have already come into our narrative in the form of God's presence with the people of Israel in the desert, especially on the stone tablets containing the commandments. These tablets, along with some of the manna and a rod that had miraculously bloomed to show Aaron's favor with God as high priest after a rebel challenge, were placed in a receptacle called the Ark of the Covenant, built to specific measurements outlined in the book of Exodus. The Ark was then carried around the desert by the Israelites, and then on into the Holy Land, after many years finding a home following God's instructions in the Holy of Holies, that central area in the Temple of Jerusalem. Now, the temple isn't built yet, but it's been promised, and it'll feature heavily moving forward. We've got to get to the promised land before we can get to the temple, though. And this is where Joshua really comes into the picture, because he's one of the twelve spies, one from each tribe, that Moses sends ahead into the promised land, also known as Canaan, to see what the prospects are there. Ten of the twelve spies report that, in essence, the land is full of giants who are going to wreck them all and they should give up. The remaining two, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, are confident that God will follow through on the promise, the whole promised land thing, and will see them through any difficulty. They use a giant cluster of grapes to support their argument. Those two, you might recall, are rewarded with being the only two to last the entire exodus, being born in Egypt and dying is settled in the Holy Land. The rest who came into the Holy Land were all from the generation born during the 40 years in the desert. On that note, since Moses screwed up and tapped that rock twice, we can't get out of the desert with him still around. 
God does allow him to glimpse the promised land from a nearby mountaintop before he dies, and you can bet he gives a speech, which we're going to completely ignore. He lives to be 120, by the way. Now it's time to enter the book of Joshua and across the river Jordan, across which lies the Holy Land. And put a pin in that name, the river Jordan, because it'll come up again later. The crossing is reminiscent of the crossing that gets the Israelites into the desert proper to begin with, since, using the ark as a kind of holy token, the Jordan is made to dry up as soon as the people carrying the ark set foot in the river. Once everyone is across, and after they've piled up some rocks to mark the occasion, the river resumes flowing as normal. The other highlight reel story I want to mention for the book of Joshua is the story of Jericho. Not so much because it comes up in the history of the papacy, it doesn't, at least not that I'm aware of, or because it's critical for understanding the overall narrative, it isn't, you can pretty much fill this part in with a general line like, and then the Israelites took over the promised land like God promised that they would. But the story of Jericho is present in any Bible summary even half this length, so I might as well not be the odd one out. Of course, all that preface has already doubled the length of my Jericho summary, but hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm apparently getting paid by the minute, so I'm making this as long and arduous as possible. Or something. Jericho is an established city already existing in the Promised Land. If the Israelites want it, they're going to have to take it by force. A tough task, since it has some pretty serious walls around it. But God gives Joshua instructions on how to destroy those walls, by marching around them, carrying the ark and blasting trumpets, it turns out. And the Israelites do as God says through Joshua, and wouldn't you know it, the walls fall down just like God said they would. Cool stuff. Now, Joshua eventually dies, aged 110 for what it's worth, and he's succeeded by, well, a lot of violence. Before we go, I want to take a moment to recommend the History of Egypt podcast by trained Egyptologist Dominic Perry. You know, just in case you didn't get enough pharaoh. Oh, and a few thank yous as well. As always, I'd like to thank our sound technician, Billy, for the theme and for his continued support and advice. I'd also like to thank our talented and generous logo designer, Russ. And of course, as always, the ever-patient Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History. Next time, we're in the Book of Judges, and more with episode 0.3, Career Day, Judges, Threshers, and an Odd Job. <laughs>